is. Yeah, that's a difficult question for me when my kids ask me, so dad, who's your boss? That's a tough one. I'm like, well, I guess God. I don't know. I mean, but ultimately, isn't the Lord all of us? I mean, isn't he the boss of all of us? You know, we're going to look today in Scripture, and we're going to see in Luke chapter 19. If you want to turn there, I'll probably save you some time to go ahead and work your way there right now. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19, and, and we're coming to a very significant passage of Scripture. We're coming to what's called the triumphal entry, where the Lord Jesus has been traveling towards Jerusalem, and he's getting ready to arrive there, and it's a it's a, it's a really interesting passage of Scripture, and it's, at times it's a little confusing, and, and it's, it's really, I think we'll be hit by it today. I, I think we'll be impressed and in, impacted by God's Word. And by the time we're done, we're going to celebrate communion together. We're going to do what Jesus told us to do when we worship Him. And so if I were going to give a, a title to our passage today, I, I would call it something like the rights of the King. What is the right of the king in our life? And the king is Jesus. So as King Jesus reigns in the earth, reigns over the earth, reigns on the earth, reigns in our lives, what right does he have? We're in Luke chapter 19. I'm going to start at verse 28 and read a little bit here. It says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up, to Jerusalem. Now we must be careful because we read that and it just seems like, well, that's the end of his destination. Okay, he's getting there. You know, it's like when you travel to Virginia Beach, you're at Virginia Beach. Ah, we're there, okay? You go to Pittsburgh, we're at Pittsburgh. And it sort of feels that way because we know all the way back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it said that, that Jesus turned his head towards Jerusalem and he started in that direction. So we're now in Luke chapter 19. We've been going 10 chapters of a journey. Now understand, where he started and where he went to, it would only be just a matter of days if he just walked straight there. But what Luke has recorded for us over the last 10 chapters is what has Jesus been instructing his disciples as they're on their way to Jerusalem. Now I want us to to feel what's going on in this passage I want us to experience the tone of the day and to experience truth for our day today. And so I want to give you a little bit of background about what's going on here so we can sort of gather the the, the momentum that that is building in this passage. So verse 41, let's read a little bit further here. I'm sorry, 28. It says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet... You've heard of the Mount of Olives? That's this mountain. At the mount that's called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples on a task. Sent them to do something. We'll look at that in just a minute. What we have here is Jesus arriving for his last week during his earthly ministry in Jerusalem. The next week, the next seven days, are, are sometimes called the Passion Week. They might call it the Holy Week. And I want to give you the, sort of the traditional view of what happens over those next seven days. Okay, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. All right, now, I want you to know there is some minor disagreement about exactly what happened on these days. Because Luke doesn't say, on Monday, you know, Jesus got up and did this. So this is as we look at the four Gospels. You know, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all record the triumphal return of Jesus, him coming into Jerusalem. They all record it, and they all talk about it in different ways. And then, just one week later, you see what's going to happen. 
Within a week, Jesus is going to die and be resurrected. So there's many things that happen here over the next week. We're going to walk through these and, and try to understand a little bit about what's going on. And, and really over the next few weeks and months, really even to the new year, we'll be looking at this time of Jesus' ministry. I want to give you one guiding truth for what we're going to see in Jesus. It's taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. I'll put it up on the screen here because I know you're in Luke chapter 19. And it's this. And the Word became flesh. The Word being Jesus. The Word became flesh. Now this, John chapter 1, is a Christmas verse, quite honestly. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, has been talking about Jesus before He became the man. The pre-incarnate Christ. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, okay? But now we get to verse number 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus, in the flesh. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Here's the term I want us to hold on to for the next couple of months as we look at Jesus in Jerusalem. He is full of truth and full of grace. You want to know what God is like. You want to know what the maker of everything is like. You read Luke 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, and you see God in the flesh, full of both grace and truth. Grace being that that loving handling of Sinful creatures. Grace being the hand that reaches out to us before Him saying, I'm not worthy to be here. Grace is the hand that reaches out and loves us and brings us to Himself. We see Jesus doing that in the last week. We see Him living that that grace out in His life. We'll see it today as He weeps over Jerusalem. He sees Jerusalem and he's, He's so moved that He weeps. Or he said, I, I really long to gather you to myself, like a, like a mother chick with her hens, okay? We see him teaching, we see him answering skeptics, we see him dying on the cross and speaking to the thief, hanging next to him and saying, today you'll be with me in paradise. This is grace. We come to Jesus, we see who Jesus is, he is full of grace. But at the same time, He's full of truth. Now we have Jesus upsetting the tables in the outer courtyard of the temple where Gentiles are supposed to be, where non-Jewish people are supposed to be, to hear about God, to hear about Yahweh, and they're in there, they're made in a marketplace, they're making all kinds of money, and Jesus upsets the tables. We see him calling out the Pharisees in a major way. The religious leaders of the day who have designed a system. They've designed a system to promote themselves at the adva- at, at really at the expense of, of all the people. So they've pushed people down and lifted themselves up. And Jesus in the last week is going to say the most direct things to them. It's shocking what he says when you put it in the context of the day. We see him also as he loves the Roman soldiers who are nailing him to the cross. Grace. At the same time, he is really living before them what is the great truth in their life, that mankind has rejected God, full of grace, full of truth. 
That's going to be a guiding passage for us. Now, in the day, let me just talk about this for just a little bit. So, verse 28, they're going into Jerusalem. We need to paint the picture for what is happening here, okay? The Gospels try to portray for us the the fervor that'd be in Jerusalem. Now, you've never been to Jerusalem, probably. I haven't either. Seen pictures, never been there. But I know, I know from research what was going on during this time. It's the Passover season. This means that literally thousands, hundreds of thousands, Josephus estimates that there'd be three to four million people who would come to Jerusalem during the Passover. So we are not talking about Martinsburg. We're not talking about Washington, D.C. We're talking about a, a very small, densely populated area for this time. The streets would just be so crowded, you wouldn't be able to walk down the streets, and there's vendors everywhere, okay? This is the most profitable time for the vendors. So, I mean, they are going to work. You know how... Black, what is it? No, the, the Thursday. What is that called? Day after Thanksgiving or whatever that is. Help me, somebody. Yes, okay, Black Friday. I've been there. Best Buy, waiting in line. Walmart, waiting in line. It's horrible, right? That's the picture. That's the picture. Now, not only is it crowded, not only are the masses there, the fervor isn't just about the people. The fervor is about excitement. Let me read to you Zechariah 9.9. Listen to the word of God written hundreds of years before this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. For behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You need to understand something. The Jewish people knew that their deliverer would come to Jerusalem. So every time they go to, they go to Jerusalem, every time they travel to Jerusalem at the Passover, they're looking for the deliverer. They're waiting for the deliverer. Because he's going to ride in on a donkey. He's going to ride. You understand why, okay? That seems kind of weird, I know. I agree. It's a little strange to my American mindset. Why is he riding a donkey? Why not a car, right? Okay, I want the car, but how about a horse, right? He rides in on a donkey. They know to look for this. They know what this means. Their deliverer is coming. Their bondage is going to be broken. He's likely going to destroy the Roman Empire. So they are waiting for deliverance in Jerusalem. And Jesus is arriving. And it's an exciting time. But at the same time, just as more introduction, it's going to reveal a problem with man. We're going to see a problem with mankind through this passage. And I wanted to summarize it so you can look for it. And I went to 1 John chapter 2. I think it's up on the screen. The desires of the flesh. 1 John chapter 2 was talking about man's curse of sin. Man sinned against God, and so we experienced a curse in our life. The world and every human being is cursed because of sin. Cursed by who? That's a good question. The answer is cursed by God. 
Because of our sin, God has placed curse in our life that drives us to Him. You want to see the evidence of it? You want to see the evidence of the curse? 1 John gives it to us. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's not from the Father. It's the curse of sin in our lives. Let me give you an idea what this is. Put one more screen up there. These are things I want... Things I prize, what I find most important to me, and things I decide that I rule my life. Here's where we're headed. We started with, what right does Jesus have in our lives? What is the right of the king in our lives? This is the opposite This is the opposite. This is when I rule. I rule. And I want things that I want. And I prize certain things. That means I give my affection to some things. Others I don't care about. And I rule. I decide. You see, the very essence of sin, the very essence of sin is to say, I don't need, nor do I want, God in my life life. It's a denial of the need, the denial of any desire of God. It's the essence of sin. So we see here what's happening. I I hope you can see where we're headed in this passage. We're going to see people desiring to deliver. They want to deliver. They want to be delivered from whatever they're in. And portrayed in them is going to be this strong desire to control we're going to have the king, Lord Jesus, who's going to walk onto the scene. And we're going to ask the question, what exactly are his rights as our king? So verse number 30, Jesus says to his disciples, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it. And bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. So it worked. They brought it. Matthew chapter 21 tells us that there were actually two, okay? A colt is a baby donkey, all right? And the mother was there with it, okay? So they have both of them. They now take them to Jesus. The owner just says, go. And they do. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. We know from John that they also threw down palm branches, as he's entering into the city, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, for all the miracles that they had seen. That's what that is. They're praising God now. Do you, do you see it in your mind's eye? Crowded city. Jesus on this never-ridden baby donkey, okay? Moving along on cloaks, palm branches. 
People were singing and, and praising and, and just celebrating. And here's what they said. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They are celebrating. That's a direct quote from Psalm 118, a messianic psalm. So they are doing as the Scriptures directed them. Scriptures has, the Scripture directed them to sing that when the King enters, when the Messiah comes you're to sing this so that people are doing what, what God has instructed them to do. The king is there. Some of them see it. The king is directed. And there's worship occurring. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd. Now, who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day. They're the ones that designed that system. Okay? Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher to Jesus. Rebuke your disciples. In other words, stop them. Speak harshly to them and make them stop this. This is blasphemy. Jesus said, I tell you. Can I say, I love this verse. If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The Lord Jesus will be worshipped. If we don't worship him in this room, if Jesus were saying this to us, he would say, if you don't worship me, these chairs will stand up and praise. Because God will be worshipped. Verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. This is a guttural term of compassion. And he said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now, they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation." Stop there. Now, if we have time, we'll land on the rest of it. Let's see some truths for today, just to, to really just see what, what I think we need to learn from this passage. And, and honestly, when I read this, like you, I'm no different than you, okay? I read the Bible, and I'm a person, and I think, why all this detail about how Jesus is entering into Jerusalem? I mean, do really to know that he sent them to get a, you know, a colt, and then they, they got the colt, and then he rode it in, put him on the donkey? I mean, do we really to know all that, God? I mean, is that really that important that we know where they got it, how they got it, how he rode, what the pavement was? What's the big deal? And not only is it in Luke, it's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four. All four Gospels record this. It just strikes me as kind of strange, and it's a little odd to read through it and to see all this detail. So it got me scratching my head. Like, what's going on here, God? What are you trying to say to us? And I land at this. What we're seeing is, the prerogative of Jesus in our life, what he deserves in our life as king is laid out here. And the first thing, I think it might already be up on the screen. Yeah, there they all are. Number one is this. We are being called to give Christ control. As the king, give him all our possessions. There is nothing in our life that is not his. Let me explain to you why, why I come to this conclusion from this passage. 
Now, Jesus directs two disciples to go and get this colt. Tells them exactly what to say. And he says to them, when asked why you're untying it, since he goes to owners, by the way, okay, so this colt is owned by more than one person. Understand we're in an agrarian society. People don't pull out money to show you how rich they are. They point at their livestock, okay? I mean, very few people would have any kind of coinage at all. And so if you are a wealthy person, you have livestock. Jesus says to his two disciples, go into town, you'll see a colt, untie it. Don't ask, don't purchase it, untie it. And when the owners come up to you, this thing must have been owned by more than one person, okay? By the way, this is, this is not a cheap item. This is not your dog or your cat, okay? This is a tool of the day. This would be like somebody coming up to your house, climbing in your car, starting it up, and backing it down your driveway. What are you going to do? Hey, hold up, man. What are you doing? And the person rolls down the window and says, oh, uh, the Lord has need of it. Yeah, right. Right? Sure he does. Sure he does. What's going on here? I believe what, what, what is happening is, first of all, know that this is fulfilling a prophecy that God had said that he would ride in on the colt of a donkey, so we're fulfilling a prophecy. Understand that the, the community is bursting with expectation of a coming Messiah. And it is bursting with the reality of who Jesus is. You know, there are some that say, in this time period, for this brief amount of time, disease was practically wiped out. Jesus is healing people. The disciples are healing people left and right. Lepers, blind, they're just healing people everywhere. There was an expectation the Messiah is here. And what did they call the Messiah? What did they call Jesus? They called him Lord. They called him Lord. I think what happened is this. The disciples came into town. God is, God is superintending all details. They come to a believer in the Messiah. And they hear this. The Lord is in need. And they said, all my possessions are God's. How freeing that is. How freeing that is. Just recently, I came across in my own life, in my own life, came across, you know, it seems like everything keeps breaking. You ever have that happen to you? You know, the heat pump goes out, the washing machine goes out, like everything, one after another. Car breaks down, you know, just keeps on happening, right? Tires need to be replaced over and over and over. And, and I can tell you, with, with complete authenticity, that, 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 that at the end of the day, my wife and I look at each other and we say, you know what? It's not our money anyway. It's not our money anyway. I guess God, you know... He wanted to spend all this money on a heat pump. Because it's his money anyway. He said, well, oh, you know, well, what are you going to do to do about this? And, and what about this? And what about that? Well, who's going to take care of me then? It's all God's possessions. Everything I have is God's. That doesn't give me permission to be foolish. I know that, okay? I'm not throwing out... Well, $1 bills would probably be more like what it would be. I'm not throwing this thing. I realize that. But it, it lowers my anxiety to know I'm not in the business of protecting what's mine. 
All my possessions are God's. We need to have the attitude that the Lord shows up and says, hey, I need your colt. You'd be like, well, I don't like that stupid donkey anyway. You can have it. I need your house. I need your car. I need your spouse. I need your love. I need your dedication. I need everything you have. Lord, it's yours. It's yours. The first thing that strikes me about this is just the the quickness of obedience, the quickness of releasing, the quickness of everything I have is yours, God. So it happens. Okay, then we, we, we move on, move on. Jump down to verse number 35, okay? They brought this colt to, to Jesus, okay? And throwing their cloaks on him, they, they sat Jesus on it. Now, that, don't, I read that and I picture like them, you know, grabbing Jesus by force and putting him on you. Know, I don't think that's what happened, okay? They, Jesus sits on this colt, and you say, what is that about? Well, you can go back to the book of 2 Samuel, and you can get a picture of what this is. In the beginning of 2 Samuel, what happens is Solomon, the son of David, inherits the throne from his father. Right? Remember David? Slew Goliath, okay? And then was the king over Israel. He was a very violent man. He just was. He was a warrior, responsible for thousands of deaths, either by his own hand or by those who were in submission to him. He was a warrior king. And God said this, even though David was in obedience to God and in his leading of the Israel army, God said, you will not build my temple. You will not build my temple. Why? Because of the life that you've lived, the warrior king, I will have your son Solomon He will build my temple. And when Solomon rode into Jerusalem, guess what Solomon rode in? Now, I guarantee you, I don't know where to turn, but when David rode in, he rode on a big white horse, right? I mean, you know, just all kinds of power and fanfare behind him, an army. But when Solomon rode in, you know what he rode in, right? What did he ride in on? A colt. Why? Why? What that represents... That represents a man of peace. That represents that he's coming in to establish peace. He's not coming in as a warrior. He's coming in to establish peace. And that's how Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. He came in to bring peace to us. Now, when Jesus comes back the second time, what's he going to ride that day? You know? I think I heard it. Comes in on a horse, okay? With all of his saints behind him. Jesus came the first time meek as a lamb. He comes back the second time as a lion. Now, the Old Testament prophets should have seen this, but they didn't. But what happens then, he rides on this colt, and, and as he's drawing near, the, the multitudes begin to rejoice and to praise with a loud voice. We already saw it. And they're quoting from Psalm 18. And what, what I want us to see here is that the Lord Jesus demands and deserves our worship. See, one of the reasons why this is given, one of the reasons why, why we see this passage all laid out four times, why this occurred. I mean, just in a very, very few days, this same crowd's going to call for his crucifixion. But what ha- we've got to realize that there is a bigger audience Hear this. There is a bigger audience to what's going on than just you and me. 
than just the people that stand in this room. God has made the entire creation that has seen His glory on display. Peter says that the angels, they see our salvation and they long to look into it. They long to understand it. I think one of the things that's happening here is God is showing all of creation. All of man. Here we are 2,000 years later. We're talking about it. God is showing all of creation, all the angels, all the demons, all the earth, all mankind of all time, that when Jesus comes in the room, the city, the town, a life, people worship. People worship. And if people won't, if you and I won't, if we refuse and say no, God is so glorious. God is so beyond us that He can say this, fine, I'll find another. I'll find another. And just in case you say, oh yeah, God, well, I'm the only one here. I'm the only one here. What's He say about the rocks? we don't worship God in our lives, voluntarily worship Him, He will find another. God is not a needy little child who says, I need you to worship me. Please, please, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Just worship me. No. When God reveals Himself Don't worry. Worshippers fall on their face. It's interesting to me that the Pharisees hated this worship. Rebuke them. Rebuke them, he said. Stop this. Can I just tell you, just as a little side note here, your worship of God, your worship of God is never going to be popular. Not till you're in heaven. It's never going to be popular. People are not going to cheer you on as you worship the Lord in your life. Now, I understand, I'm not talking about singing of songs. That's part of worship. I'm talking beyond that. We've, this has come up repeatedly over the last few weeks. Do not be surprised when you encounter opposition. It's the nature of this sin-cursed earth. And then in verse number 41, just wrapping it up, they draw near and Jesus now is crying out and saying to Jerusalem, I wish you had turned to me. I wish you would turn to me, but they will not. And so then he talks about this. Jesus himself gives a prophecy. And he says that the, the city will be destroyed. The city will be destroyed. Now this happened only 40 years later. Rome came in and just squashed the Jewish people. And what we see here is There was a divine reason for that. There was a divine reason. Because they rejected the Messiah. Now, God's not done with them. God's not done with the Jewish people. They're they're still today followers of Christ who are of Jewish descent. He's not done with them. But the city of Jerusalem would experience a great judgment here because of what was going to happen just five short days later. What was going to happen? The city itself would be destroyed. And what I want you to see from that is the king, he calls for us to give him our rule. The people of Jerusalem said, they're going to say, crucify him. 
We don't want him. I'm reminded, look back, just a couple couple verses. Look back, look back to chapter 19. Okay? Look at verse, verse number 14. Remember what Jesus just instructed his disciples. He said the citizens hated, hated the noblemen. And they sent a delegation after him and said, We do not want this man to reign over us. On our own, we say to God, I don't want you. I don't want you. Stay away from me. Stay out of my life. God says, worship me. Worship me. That's what you were made for. Come to me. I love you with an everlasting love. Man says, I will make the decisions. My possessions are mine. I will give my my affection to who I want to. God says, trust me. Love me. Come to me. These are the rights of the king in our life. I want you to see where Jesus goes. Just to close it out. Chapter 19 at the end. So he enters the temple. Verse number 45. He entered the temple to drive out those who sold. And he said this, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Again, another Old Testament quote. And the concept is this. God desires His people. says pray here. Understand His worship. God desires His people to worship Him. Him, to worship Him. Uh, prayer is a way of doing that. But instead, what had happened is these people had made this an economic boom for them. And they had designed a system where, where they would benefit financially from people who were coming to worship. And this sickened God. It sickened Jesus. He turns over the tables. He, he honestly just... just his, his rebuke... And his punishment begins here and ends in 70. Because people did not worship him the way he deserved and the way he called them to. Well, Jesus has directed us how to worship. He has. My question is, do we live that? He is the king. He is the king. The loving king that died for you. In a moment, we're going to worship. We're going to worship in a way that Jesus has instructed. In, these last week, in this last week, we call it communion, the, the Lord's table, whatever you want to call it, Jesus instructed. But before we go there, before we go there, I want to just ask you, I wish I could talk to each person individually and just look you in the face and just say, have you turned to Christ as your King? Are you tired of trying on your own? Are you tired of living out the, I will do what I want, I will prize what I want, I will rule what I want? Have you ate from that trash long enough that you're sickened by it and you turn back to the Master? Now listen, if you make that call... If you make that turn, you're going to think it's this. You're going to think it's cower. And that's good. 
That's good that you feel that way. That's good. But your heavenly Father reaches out with hands of love and pulls you close to Him and says in your ear, I loved you with an everlasting love. We turn to Christ today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, I just pray for each of us as we consider the kingship of Jesus.